Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. As we head into autumn, Phil Atreid, Head of Investment Consulting, along with four of the Barclays Investments team, tackle some of the key questions posed recently by our clients and customers. These include the outlook for the UK and global economy, the forthcoming US elections, government debt, and why now is as good a time as ever to invest. Hello and welcome to this autumn special edition of Word on the Street. Many of our listeners will have returned from summer breaks. Uh, The kids are back at school for now. And investors will be no doubt reviewing portfolios and eyeing up the news flow into the end of the year. So for this edition, rather than have our experts around a virtual table all at once, I'm going to get the opportunity to grill them individually on some of the biggest issues that I'm hearing from clients at the moment as they return from those breaks and they look at their investments. We'll be looking into the outlook for the economy, both UK and global, and of course, views on the world's investment markets. To help with this, I have four Barclays experts, so the ever-present Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, another familiar voice in JP Yeagers, our Head of Asset Allocation, and two of our investment strategists, Hal Ramwe and Luke Pierce. So over the next 20 minutes or so, I'll be looking to cover questions ranging from why invest now, So what are we going to do with mountain government debt as the COVID challenges roll on into the autumn? Well, I think the easiest place to start is with the latest on the economic outlook. What are the team thinking about how the economy will evolve into the end of the year and beyond that? Yeah, Phil, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question when you're in the middle of a, you know, a recession that's defying most historical statistics or you know, defying historical comparison in many, um, in many senses. But I think there are a few points to make about where we're at right now. I mean, in some ways, as we pointed out before, there are significant kind of artificial aspects to this recession. You know, as we talked about, the economy was reasonably healthy or most of the major actors were in reasonably good health as we came up to the pandemic. Uh, and then the response to the pandemic from policymakers essentially meant that large parts of the economy were put into a kind of suspended suspended animation uh, in order to facilitate the fight against the virus. Now that, like I say, has created a recession of jaw-dropping statistics, but it's also informing, uh, alongside a very muscular policy response, uh, a very brisk recovery from those, those lows plumbed earlier in, in the year. Now, it's not that simple, obviously. With this pandemic, significant parts of the economy have also uh, you know, been warped, changed, um, in some cases made more more efficient. Uh, and that's created, or that's changed uh, both the quantity and the type of jobs on offer in some parts of the economy. So that's sort of, you know, making it complicated. Uh, and I think from our perspective, you know, most people's perspective, looking at the letters uh, that were sort of banded around so often to describe this recession, we're still very much in that kind of V-shaped recovery story. But finishing off the right-hand side of that V is, is going to be complicated, um, no doubt about it. It certainly has been a very strange, and I don't use the term lightly, unprecedented uh, period for investors to grapple with, Will. So what do you see as the complexities we face in finishing off that V-shaped recovery that you're referencing? I mean, I think just for context, first of all, I mean, I think there are some sort of, there is gathering evidence that the world is, in many respects, kind of learning how to coexist with this pandemic a little bit better than we saw in the sort of, you know, in the earlier stages. So you're seeing you know, even the more sort of vulnerable sectors, the consumer services sectors, you know, have sort of found that uh, with relatively cheap mitigation measures, you know, mask wearing and so on, that parts of that, even that sector, the most affected sector can can recover pretty fully. 
I mean, I guess the big complication with regards to the outlook, both sort of positive and negative, is really to do with kind of the evolution of vaccines and treatments. And we can't pretend to have an edge there, of course. We are, you know, if you're looking at sort of how um, expectations are evolving in that space, you are seeing significantly more optimism about having a vaccine available much sooner than people uh, previously thought, you know, so early in 2021, maybe even some stretching to sort of the end of this year, sort of limited availability. So, and you've seen that date move forward and forward and become more and more plausible in many people, uh, many investors' eyes. That's that's one thing. And I think more broadly, uh, you know, and this is a bit of a cop out, I'm afraid, but you'll, you'll you'll be used to that from me. But you know, again, we'd go back on that kind of analogy of kind of risk being a bit, a little bit like an iceberg. We'd we'd, we'd urge people not to focus too much. Uh, and this year is a great example in a sense, a great reminder. We get reminders every year, but it's a great reminder of why you don't want to get too carried away with focusing on the risks that you think you can see in the calendar year ahead. That's what we always anchor to. Uh, you know, all of those kind of outlook documents always sort of anchor to various elections or various other stuff. The reality is that risk is like an iceberg, that we see a little bit of it and there's a huge chunk underwater, not visible until we hit it. Now, the point about that is, is that that, underwater iceberg doesn't just have to be negative risk it can also be positive risk to your view and so i think you know that that's something just to to keep in mind as we um as we go ahead you know, nonetheless, I mean, I think in terms of challenges ahead, you know, I've alluded to the labour market. That is something I think that many people are, are rightly worrying about in terms of sort of, you know, the employment backdrop as policy start support starts to be removed or lessened around the world towards the end of the year. A lot of people are sort of, you know, worrying understandably about what we'll find under the cover of that policy support. And, you know, that, that could create, uh, you know, complications going forward. And that's one of the things that we're definitely looking to. And so has this pandemic altered the team's thinking on the longer term growth and inflation prospects for, for the world economy? Well, yes, I mean, I, potentially. And you and I have talked before about a number of studies that have looked back at sort of, you know, the pandemic effects, you know, previous pandemics and their effects on um, ensuing economic growth and inflation you know, over the centuries. Now, there's lots of different reasons, you know, and these these are these you know, there's lots of reasons why the results might be different this time, from demographic to to policy response to all sorts of uh, all sorts of factors. But you know, that, that 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 thinking should certainly be an input. I mean, it, it's based on you know those studies and the results of those studies uh, are sort of based on fairly sound economic intuition in many senses. So we can't ignore them altogether, and they are suggesting, like I say, that you know that your 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 baseline uh, view in terms of um, how the how the economy will look after the, the pandemic for perhaps for many years is you know that lower growth and inflation is 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 one of the potential sort of outcomes you know, however i do think there is a sort of important bit of context here not just the policy response which really is very very different um, in terms of previous eras showing that policymakers in some instances have really learned from history i think in terms of speed of policy response and size and so on but also, uh, you know, you and I have talked for many years and, and, and we're not alone in the industry talking about this or not alone in, in, in many spheres talking about this, that we are in the foothills potentially of a, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, a genuine sort of economic transformation, which could, you know, if it is allowed to, to be, if it's unleashed, could theoretically cause, you know, a growth boom. So that also has to be sort of, you know, it's factored into your, into your thinking in many ways. Now, obviously, again, you know, even that is not simple. You know, all economic transformations come with significant stress on the labor market. You know, jobs are destroyed and created, and there's sometimes a you know a lag between the creation and the 
uh, a destruction and creation. You know, societies and so on are asked to sort of bear significantly greater strain. But, you know, just it just shows that sort of, you know, an appreciation of context, you can't just robotically look at history and assume that that, is, uh, that contains the answers. Context and perspective is vital in this. So I would say don't get too set on any one view about how uh, your growth and inflation outlook is affected. Uh, you've got to stay mentally agile in what you expect as it comes down the pipeline. But I think, you know, certainly your baseline expectations are a bit lower than they were before. Thank you, Will, for getting us started. That leads me nicely on to the next member of the team, Luke Pierce. Luke is a member of our asset allocation team and actually the one tasked with specialising in one of the hottest topics uh, right now that we're hearing from clients, uh, that being US elections. Luke, thanks for joining us. And let's start with the polls. What are they saying at the moment? And so right now, national polls are showing as Biden as having an advantage uh, over President Trump. Uh, so some have actually suggested that the former vice president gained momentum as protest developed across America uh, and actually also as voter sentiment turned um, as the coronavirus evolved. Uh, so both of those factors here may be contributing to the current gap in the polls. Um, it is worth bearing in mind a couple of things, though, uh, when it comes to the polls. Um, so the first point, um, which is hopefully an obvious one, but we do well to remind ourselves, uh, is that nothing is a given. Um, what the polls simply do is provide a snapshot of the relative advantage of each candidate, uh, assuming the elections are held today. Um, there's obviously still a couple of months between now and the election, uh, and a couple of months is an awful long time in politics. And the second point is that there's always uncertainty around these polling estimates. Um, so this was probably best illustrated back in 2016, uh, when Hillary Clinton was ahead in the polls by a few points, actually right up until the night before the election, uh, and obviously ultimately lost. Um, now, but Biden's lead in the polls is actually a little bit larger than Clinton's was at this point in the campaign. Um, but the race is still early, uh, too early to call uh, at this stage. Um, so we would be a little bit wary of any confident predictions there. Yeah, Luke, a useful reminder that there's still a long way to go yet in, in this race. And if we take a step back, how does the team tend to view elections more generally? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're quite comfortable confessing that we don't consider ourselves to, to have an edge here, um, really, really for a few different reasons. Um, so first of all, you only need to look back uh, over the last few years, uh, not just in the, in the US, but, but also the UK, really to illustrate the difficulty in reliably calling elections. Uh, and also, when you think about the market implications, uh, you have to think well beyond correctly guessing who becomes the next president. Um, you know, there's many other moving parts to consider, um, for example, who gains control of Congress uh, and therefore how likely it is that a president's policies can be enacted. And then again, even if you are confident in those things, you still then have to try and discern what markets are expecting and what they are pricing in. Uh, which is no mean feat given everything else that markets are having to digest at the moment, uh, not least of which the path of the economic recovery. Thanks, Luke. And yeah, voting around the world in recent years has certainly turned up some surprises. As you say, market moves post such events uh, as this election may well be determined by the degree of the surprise element. That leads me nicely on to my last point for you, Luke. Um, I was looking at the performance of equity markets after the last 10 US elections. And so for the three, the six, 12 months afterwards. And the conclusion seems to be that in the overwhelming majority of the time, um, stock markets are actually up over those periods. Why is that? And is it likely to be different this time? Yeah, good, good, good question. Um, 
I, I think some of that will be the tendency for stock markets to naturally go up a little bit more often than not, um, particularly over, over some of those time frames. And as to whether it will be different this time around, I think that depends on your perspective of the president's ability to influence the stock market or, or indeed the economy. Um, historically speaking, the president's ability to influence the stock market is pretty limited. Uh, and this is actually partly by design, if you think about it, since Congress provides the checks and balances to the powers of the White House. Now, I do think it's reasonable to argue things have been different with President Trump. So US-China trade tensions have remained the you know, a dominant narrative in the financial media the last couple of years. Um, they, of course, still remain today, though are arguably lower in the pecking order of, of market concerns right now. And obviously, you had the tax cuts enacted in 2017, which had a large impact on, on corporate profits that year, um, also influenced the huge stock markets return, uh, returns we saw the same year. Uh, and if you remember, right after the November 2016 election, you saw a big spike in Treasury yields as well, um, as markets were anticipating uh, much higher inflation going forward. And I think in amongst all that, though, um, I think the key point to remember uh, when looking back to 2016 is that President Trump's victory was unexpected. Uh, and as I said, that's, that's the key point to remember here. And what that basically means is that markets hadn't really priced in the likely policies that he'd advocated. So, for example, the, the tax cuts that I just mentioned. And um, I think this time around, if you find that markets price in the likely winner and there are no upsets this time around, um, the, the upcoming U.S. election could be less of an event for markets um, in, in that scenario. Yeah, it's certainly been interesting to see President Trump's overt interest in the US stock market um, throughout his first term. Thank you, Luke, for your insights. And I'm very certain that we'll be hearing more from you on this topic over the next uh, few weeks and, and couple of months. So moving on, we have Hao Ran Wee, another uh, senior member of our asset allocation team, whose expertise um, it tends to be pretty wide ranging. But for the purposes of today, uh, I have him here to put the current global government debt pile into a bit of perspective for us. So, how run? It's not surprising that many people that I speak to are increasingly worried um, about the rising levels of both UK and global government debt um, as we see sort of COVID moving forward. Um, if we weren't concerned before, we should surely be pretty alarmed right now, no? That <clears throat> certainly concerns here. And the higher levels of government debt that we're seeing will have to be eventually dealt with one way or the other. But I wouldn't say that uh, things are catastrophic right now. And the reason for that is that is because we need to frame the current debt levels we're seeing today in their proper historical and economic context. Now, when we talk about whether or not debt is sustainable or a certain uh, debt ratio is sustainable, there are a couple of things to factor in here. The three main ones are growth, inflation, and interest rates. So let's start off the first two. If your growth and inflation is persistently higher than the interest rate that you are servicing your debt with, then over time your your debt pile will shrink. On the other hand, if in the if interest rates are higher than growth and inflation, then your debt will eventually become unsustainable as it will be growing exponentially. So if we look at where we are today, uh, yes, growth and inflation are certainly lower for a variety of structural reasons, but so are interest rates. Uh, in fact, uh, certain countries like uh, Europe and Japan in particular, uh, 
interest rates there are negative, meaning that there's almost a zero cost in borrowing money uh, for these governments. Uh, of course, this environment may change. Uh, who knows? Uh, perhaps a surge in new technological innovations uh, may drive another wave of growth, uh, helping push interest rates and growth back up. Uh, perhaps all this uh, fiscal stimulus that we are seeing right now may lead to a structural lift in inflation. Uh, who knows? Uh, the future is, uh, unfortunately, to a large degree, unknowable. Uh, the economic context is always shifting. But as it stands now, because we're living in a lower interest rate environment today, uh, governments can afford to take on more debt. And that makes us less, a bit less worried about the higher debt levels that we're seeing today. Uh, many commentators you see in the news, uh, they like to compare current debt levels to history. Uh, and, and then they say that they're so much more higher today and then declare that we're in for some sort of uh, uh, economic hardship or apocalypse. But that completely ignores the different environment that we're living in today. And we argue that that's an over simplistically, uh, over overly simplistic way uh, to frame the current de uh, debate regarding debt. So yeah, some reassuring points in there, Halran, and another good example of why investors should be, you know, careful not to simply look to the past and extrapolate historic references uh, into the future. So turning um, to my second point for you, that. that seems to be a new strand of thinking in some parts of the political spectrum that governments can, I suppose, spend what they like without any real consequences. Now, that may well be an oversimplification, but, but surely that just can't be the case, right? Yeah. So what I think that governments, uh, they have more room to borrow today because of lower interest rates. Uh, it doesn't mean, as you said, it doesn't mean that they can borrow infinitely. There are ultimately natural limits to how much a government can actually borrow. Uh, the two big ones are again uh, interest rates and inflation. Now, when a government borrows, uh, it, it does so by issuing debt to investors. Now, if investors become worried that a country's debt pile is growing too fast or is soon going to be unsustainable, they would require a higher interest rate uh, to compensate them for the extra risk of lending to that government. Uh, this higher interest rate can crowd out uh, private domestic spending uh, through higher borrowing costs for companies, uh, thus leaving the economy worse off. Uh, in the worst case scenario, <coughs> sorry, in the worst case scenario, uh, foreign investors they they can dump the country's uh, debt and mass, uh, thus leading to excessive currency depreciation or financial instability. So previous debt crises uh, in the emerging markets uh, are a result of this. Now, technically, a government that can issue debt in its own currency will technically never go bankrupt as it can, in theory, print money to purchase its own debt. Uh, however, uh, too much of this will eventually lead to hyperinflation, uh, thus also leaving the country worse off. Now, thankfully, there aren't, there aren't too many signs that these limits are being breached. So if you look at uh, both interest rates and inflation, a, a large portion of developed government bonds are trading at negative yields, so interest rates are still very low. And at the same time, we all know that inflation remains lackluster. Uh, in fact, uh, developed central banks actually have the opposite problem, trying to raise inflation. So yes, there are ultimately limits to borrowing, but there aren't too many signs right now, thankfully, that we are imminently close to breaching them yet, at least for developed economies uh, so far. Yeah, again, good to know that there are some natural checks and balances with regards to government borrowing. But investors should no doubt keep an eye on longer term cost of borrowing, uh, that, that being a major factor. 
So finally, we, we clearly have some way to go with the current recovery, as referenced by Will earlier on. Um, but when inevitably we're faced uh, with future economic challenge, there's a concern expressed by some that surely we must now be out of tools. What on earth could policymakers do next? This is an interesting question. Uh, it's a huge area of debate, uh, of debate among policymakers today. Uh, the problem is that with interest rates close to zero today, there's simply not much room left to cut rates further. <clears throat> now, uh, I believe that central banks can still lower interest rates slightly deeper into negative territory if needed. They can also expand their quantitative easing programs or commit to keeping rates lower for longer. So there are still some tools uh, left uh, here for central bankers. But uh, yes, monetary policy is looking quite uh, limited and close to being exhausted today. And because of that, uh, policymakers will have to rely increasingly on fiscal stimulus, uh, that is government spending, to offset future economic shocks. And also, because of the factors that I mentioned just now, uh, governments, they have more room to borrow today. So that means that the fiscal option hasn't been fully exhausted yet, at least relative to monetary policy. Uh, and I think policymakers, they do start to realize that. Uh, they have started to realize that. There are some of the more... Uh, unconventional policy options like helicopter money out there, uh, which sort of um, uh, fuses, uh, which is a fusion of both fiscal and monetary policy. But so far, it hasn't been really attractive, seen as attractive by policymakers, or at least it's not seen as being needed yet. I also think that it's worth noting uh, that the speed and scale in which monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, was implemented in the pandemic was quicker and in some ways larger than that uh, during the Great Financial Crisis 10 years ago. For example, uh, today, the European Central Bank was much quicker to ease policy this time by expanding their quantitative easing program, while back in back during the Great Recession, they were much more hesitant to do so. In the UK today, the government was relatively quick uh, to come up with new creative fiscal policies like the uh, unemployment furlough scheme and the eat out to help out scheme uh, in order to aid targeted sectors of the economy. Uh, so this is a promising trend that we're seeing in that policymakers have become more reactive and have shown themselves able to come up with creative policies to aid the economy. So in summary, uh, the toolkit, yes, is a lot more limited today, but it hasn't been fully, it hasn't been fully exhausted yet. And also, uh, policymakers, they are more, they are also today more reactive to using whatever tools they have left. And more importantly, the ability of policymakers to come up with new creative uh, tools uh, shouldn't be underestimated. And I think what's important now, what's certain now, is that policymakers, they need to discuss how they can make the best use of what available options they have today, right now, before the next downturn hits, so that they can respond in time and adequately. Interesting. So just as we highlight human ingenuity underpinning future market returns, policymaker ingenuity is equally something to understand and probably follow quite closely. And we obviously continue to see them learning, uh, being policymakers, learning from the past events as new challenges present themselves. Thanks, Haram, for, for joining us. And so finally, uh, last but certainly not least, we have our head of asset allocation, Jean-Paul Jaegers, um, to bring it all together for us. And I suppose shining a bit of a light um, on what all of this means for the funds and the portfolios that we run on behalf of our clients. 
JP, you've been around the investment block a little, if you'll pardon the inference. Have you ever seen anything like this first half of the year before? And, and what have been your key learnings from this period as an investor? Yeah, thanks, Phil. Yeah, I've, I've been in investment management for, for the last 15 years. And, and um, the, the interesting bit I always find is that every crisis is very different. I very vividly remember the 2007-2008 episode, which made a big impression on me. And also, if you think back about the Eurozone crisis in 2012, for very different reasons. And now this year, we have seen something that I think that very few investors really ever experienced in their career. Uh, first of all, we see that the pandemic uh, has economic repercussions which are less clear, less straightforward, has different winners and losers that we've seen in previous recessions. And from the start on, it was quite unclear what the duration and what the path to a resolution would look like. Uh, we've also seen that governments and central banks have been very swift in stepping in, which in previous crises has been different as well. And lastly, there has been a big personal impact on a lot of people uh, Families have been shaken up. We see remote working, self-isolation, travel bans. So it, it's a very different type of crisis than we have seen before. When just looking at markets, we see it was one of the sharpest and one of the fastest declines ever recorded. But at the same time, the rebound was equally impressive as we did see that the lockdown measures did work. The key learning, uh, well, well, we know that events will come and go over time. And they are, most of them are inherently unpredictable. Who in 2019 would have thought that 2020 would look like this? Quite. The path for 2020 certainly wasn't on my list of predictions or, or frankly, anyone else's uh, that I speak to either. But a question that we're often posed, JP, is why should I get invested right now? And I think that's understandable given investors see risk almost everywhere they turn right now. And you know whether it be global stock markets at or near highs, you know, bond markets surely looking pretty expensive um, right now. It doesn't look a very tempting prospect uh, or, or environment for investors right now. What would be your response? New highs in, in, in financial markets is not something I would get particularly concerned about. We know that if investors invest, they get a risk premium. There's, of course, if you look at, a, at an index, you should expect that to move higher over longer periods of time. You are correct to point out that recent returns in, in recent years uh, ha have been quite strong. And somehow it feels as if, we, if you are being too late. However, remember, these feelings are not necessarily the best raters to use. In March this year, with financial markets down 20, 30%, countries in, in unprecedented lockdown measures, healthcare systems shaking, most investors did not feel it was a great time to invest. Well, actually it was. Admittedly, it's hard to fight those, those emotions, but we better not let uh, get longer term investment decisions being dependent on an emotion in one point in time. We do know some assets are indeed in expensive and some of them frankly have been expensive for quite a while. We simply do not know exactly where these valuations will go. We do know that investors get compensated for investment risk. There's over long periods of time, there will be a reward and returns to investors in a diversified portfolio. Also part of the reason why asset prices are rising and therefore investors are willing to accept a lower yield or a lower income in the form of dividends or coupons is that cash deposit rates are zero in large parts of the Western world and will likely stay low for a long period of time. There's a possible lower return in investments 
should be compared to doing nothing or the alternative like cash, where currently the interest rates don't look very appetizing either. Okay, so we shouldn't forget about relative returns. And I think that probably brings me nicely on to another thing that's pretty hard to ignore um, in this year's market movements, the glaring gap between winners and losers. And there's some pretty good examples out there, such as um, you know, technology stocks versus energy and banking stocks, the UK versus US equity market performances, um, gold versus oil in the commodity space. Um, so to what extent you know, are or were these divergences predictable, JP? And how do you and the team go about you know, building a portfolio in that context? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And it's essentially exactly exactly the reason why investors should diversify their investments. If you spread your risk, you will, you will see that your portfolio goes, uh, goes down and up less extreme. Often these divergences are rather hard to pinpoint well ahead of time. The things you just mentioned, we know with the benefit of hindsight, but however, the real question for investors is, do you have enough confidence that you will anticipate those divergences to happen in the next one or two years? At Barclays, we look at what assets are likely to provide clients with a return over the longer period and how we can mix and match those to arrive at a portfolio that reflects the right risk and return uh, characteristics for clients. Thanks, JP. So to finish, one of the most important parts of your role surrounds the strategic asset allocation, uh, and that's the long-term mix of assets and geographic exposures that we, we work with, that we invest in on behalf of our clients in portfolios. So how do you use history to influence those allocations? And I know the team tries hard to look beyond just the last 10 years, but how and, and why? Yeah, that, that, that's very important indeed. We, we cannot simply look back and extrapolate the past. But what do we do then? So at Barclays, we use historical returns and we mix and match them many, many times, hundreds of thousands of times. This gives us many potential uh, futures. By using historical returns, we preserve the asset price characteristics, but by mixing and matching them many times over, we create a robust portfolio that should be able to weather many potential future outcomes. At Barclays, we use insight of our behavioral finance team in this approach, whereby effectively we punish losses much more harder than gains, which is closer aligned to the emotions that, that clients have and how they experience price fluctuations. And lastly, we use the insights of our asset allocation team to help shape forward-looking returns. By this way, we create a portfolio that should be robust and diversified for clients to get the best return for the appropriate level of investment risk. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks again, JP. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again for this Word on the Street special. Hopefully there's some thought-provoking insights in there for you again today as we head into the autumn. As always, you can listen to our regular Friday uh, podcast, giving you the latest on our thoughts around markets and investment thinking. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.